listening to With Woman, a podcast hosted by midwives Sophie and Ashley. Join us as we help you to navigate the transition from womanhood to motherhood and everything in between. With Woman is your unfiltered and raw guide to empowering you to trust the process in hopes that each episode leaves you feeling a little more supported through your journey. Before we get into this episode, a little disclaimer. Although we are midwives, the information discussed in this podcast is not intended to substitute the care or advice of your healthcare provider. And we swear a lot. So here's your warning on that too. Hello. Welcome to... Is this episode seven? Six. Seven. Seven. Oh, look at us go. (laughs) (laughs) Seventh and final for the year. Yeah, we're having a little um, Christmas hiatus, which I think is a much needed break for us both. Ash has worked... 11 shifts in a row. Yeah, which is stupid. (laughs) Why do you do that to yourself? Well, I don't realize at the time, and then it happens, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Because you work over two different places. Yeah, and. You're a jack of all trades. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite, I wish. I actually have a really funny story for you, though. Um, What you do. (laughs) What you do. Um, So. So obviously I work in a fertility clinic uh-huh. and naturally when you're surrounded by women who are struggling to fall pregnant, that obviously makes you question your ability Whether to fall you pregnant. Have a baby. I've never actually yeah. tried to have a baby. So, you know, you just want to see where you're at. And so it's almost a part of like orientation <laughs> nearly that <laughs> every nurse that starts working in IVF clinic wants to check their AMH so if you don't know what an AMH is it's an anti-malarian hormone it kind of gauges your the number of eggs you have left essentially um which is very interesting it is yeah it is a really interesting it's a blood test scary and it's not like super indicative of really how fertile you are which I didn't know at the time that I had it taken. But anyway, um, I've obviously had lots of chats with lots of the clinicians that I work with <laughs> since having this blood test because the result wasn't amazing. Um, and I've already had my huge cry about this. I had a like mental breakdown in the middle of Bondi Junction, Westfield, when I got my oh, result. Oh, <laughs> did they call you with your result there? Well, I asked one of the nurses work? at work to call, oh, like to check the results there. and to call me because yeah. I wasn't at work that day and I couldn't wait any longer because I'm so like impulsive and like I have no patience whatsoever. Um, anyway, and yeah, she told me my result and yeah, I was in the middle of Westfield, Bondi Junction and I burst so into tears and called my other friend. Wasn't <laughs> a good result? No, it's not great. Um, it's like less than 10th centile for my age group. So, so that's how many eggs I have, have left. present. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and it can fluctuate and I've since found out that maybe I took it at the wrong time. So it potentially won't be as bad and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's kind of been playing on my mind for a really long time. Well, since I had since it tested, so it's about six months or so. It's been playing in the back of my mind. I don't want pressure to meet someone in order to have children. And then the clinician that I work with all the time, she tells me that I need to freeze my eggs and I'm just not like psychologically ready ready to do that um, for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, Yeah. it's huge and snaps to all the women that are my age that go ahead and do it. I think it's incredible and amazing, but I'm just not at that point where I'm ready to put myself. Individual has to come to that. On their yeah. Own. Yeah, yeah totally and even though I work within that realm all the time I'm just it's not for me right now anyway but the anxiety is still there so <laughs> things are quieting down at work at the moment <laughs> anyway 
we had some new girls start um, who are working across another clinic, but you know, they're being taught at our clinic that we work out currently. And someone brought up the AMH blood test and how every nurse does it at the beginning of their fertility career and blah, blah, blah. And then it sparked it back in my mind. And I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to scan myself. <laughs> Two days beforehand, um, I'd had my blood taken and I just checked all my hormones um, and I had my blood taken so one of the nurses could practice venipuncture on me. And Which I was like, what we blood? Do with nurses, yeah, don't we? <laughs> yeah. The way that we learn to take blood is by taking it from each other. Um, imagine if you applied that to other aspects of life. Yeah, it's no. so weird. Practice and, vaginal examinations. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did not do that. <laughs> no, we did not. Um, leads into our vaginal health discussion that we'll have today though. Anyway, back to my story. So I knew that I was close to ovulation. So I was like, oh, I wonder how many like follicles I have. I was like, I'm going to scan myself. And I chose the scanner that's in one of the specialist rooms. So because of that, I brought another nurse in the room with me in case he walked in. (laughs) Could you imagine? (laughs) It's double door. Is it the internal? It's an internal. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, Ash, what are you doing? In my room. So my other lovely colleague stood on the other side of the door. And also she was there in case I needed her, which I ended up needing her. Because doing an internal examination. It's really hard. Probably isn't the easiest thing. If anyone's done it, had an internal ultrasound for any reason, you know it's uncomfortable. Let alone trying to do it yourself. Yeah. So you can imagine the position I was in. The bed has like little foot stirrups and it's kind of like half a bed. It's not a full bed. So like my bum's on the stop my bum's on the bed and then my feet are like on these two little like foot paddle Paddles. things and then I'm kind of sitting upright but like one hand's leaning and I'm trying to get this probe in so uncomfortable why didn't your friend just do it she like I said to her let me just see if I can do it myself because if yeah. I can't see anything because there's nothing there I'm probably gonna have another meltdown yeah understandable but let me at least try and put the probe in and then you can take over Anyway, put the probe in. <laughs> I was yelling out to Cass. I was like, oh my God, my lining is stunning. <laughs> that's the lining of my uterus. It looked bloody fantastic. And I was like, well, that's good. And then I got to my right ovary and then I was like, oh my, I was giving her a commentary, like play by play. She was like, oh my God, this is so funny. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got heaps of follicles on this ovary. And I was counting them. I couldn't measure them because there's no way I could have put the probe in and be reaching over to the ultrasound machine to measure everything. And then I couldn't find my left ovary. And I was like trying so hard. My leg was up in the air. (laughs) <laughs> trying to find you must be very flexible to be able to do this oh I was a dancer back in the day <laughs> anyway I was like Cass I need you come in so she took over the probe and she's like pushing in she's like found it she's like measuring them she's like oh you've got one at 14 that's so good blah 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 anyway I have 12 follicles in that one cycle which is far better than what my AMH so your original indicated. bloods must have just been like at the wrong time, like you said. Yeah, potentially at the wrong time or hopefully that wasn't just a once-off really good month and then the rest of the months are duds. <laughs> Could you imagine? I'm like, oh, I'll wait till 35 to have babies. I'm fine. I have 12 follicles that one month. Little July, I know that's the last month I ever had follicles. If you don't know what a follicle is, follicles are on your ovaries. Picture like a bunch of grapes. That's what kind of your ovaries look like at a certain time of the month um, and that's what 
contains the egg that gets released when you ovulate. So, so the more follicles you have, the more chances of releasing. Well, it just says that it, it indicates that you have a good egg reserve, essentially. Mm. But my AMH blood test didn't indicate that. So it's not aligning. And that does happen with some people. And that's why a lot of clinicians say, and they have said to me since, you know, that's not the only way to determine fertility, but it's a nice way to check in and see where your body's at. Obviously, if mine was really, really low, I'd be freezing my eggs yeah. right now, but it's kind of on that. I mean, less than 10 centile isn't great. Um, majority of the clinicians that I've spoken to have basically said, look, you really should have children before 35. Beyond that point, it's too hard. Which that just puts Which I think a lot of pressure on you as well. It does. But I'll freeze my eggs at 33, I think. That's mm-hmm. my magic number if it's not looking like I'm having children anytime soon. Yeah, but I'll scare myself before I make that A lot decision. of women as well literally say, like, they're no closer to meeting anyone and then the right person comes along and you're either pregnant or married or engaged or whatever within, like, a year. Mm, I know. It happens, ladies. <laughs> it happens. Most of the women who are listening to this podcast are well aware. Yeah. <laughs> Our demographic. <laughs> anyway, that's my story about um, doing an internal vaginal ultrasound at my workplace. <laughs> it leads into our episode for today, actually, which is vaginal health. The people spoke, and this is what you want to hear about. We're pretty excited for this one, actually. Yeah, because I am learning a lot about the vagina whilst <laughs> doing this episode. <laughs> How well do we actually really know our vagina? I don't think a lot of women really understand the changes that happen through a menstrual cycle. Not just menstrual cycle, but the anatomy of the vagina, the changes in pregnancy, postpartum. And today on this episode of With Woman, we are joined with Dr. Dan, who's our resident OBGYN, to discuss how to maintain the health of your vagina. As we know, vaginas are all different colors, shapes, and sizes, and there's no such thing as normal. If you've listened to us before, you know we are big advocates for normalizing conversations surrounding the the female body. And we've got some good nuggets of wisdom for you today. Like, did you know that douching, feminine wipes, and vaginal deodorants aren't necessary and that our natural bacteria keeps our lady garden clean and healthy. I like that, lady garden. <laughs> Even though I just described it as a garden, it's actually not meant, not meant to smell like roses. So no, no. <laughs> that's why you shouldn't be using those fragrance sort of products. And I guess you shouldn't be using them because they can lead to infection and irritation sometimes. Exactly right. They can definitely interrupt your natural bacteria and flora yeah. that's there. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with the landscaping of your lady garden. <laughs> AKA the anatomy of your vagina. My partner will like that one because he's a landscaper. <laughs> but he doesn't landscape my garden. No, no. <laughs> so we should start the anatomy lesson by mentioning the distinction between the vulva and the vagina as this is very important when talking about keeping this part of our bodies in balance. Your vagina is located inside your body and it leads from your cervix and your vulva is all the external parts. So when we're talking external parts, the mons pubis, which is like the top of your vagina. It's your pubic bone. 
That's, really? That's like the just... part that you show laser clinics? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you probably show laser clinics all of your vulva, actually, now that I think about it. But the top part, anyway, moving on. Your clitoris yep. and your... So that's your bean. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to be so bad. Your clitoral hood, which is like the little knobby bit. It's kind of the bit that protects your clitoris, really. Yeah. Yeah. And your urethral opening, which is the next part. Yes. So your urethral opening is where your urine comes out of. Excellent. And then there's your inner labia and your outer labia. Yes. So these actually have uh, medical terms to them. The labia minora is your inner labia. And then the labia majora is your outer labia. So basically your flaps. Yeah, (laughs) and they can come in all different shapes, sizes, colors. So all of these parts make up the vulva. You then go on to your vaginal opening. Kind of like a tube. Well, I think it's important to note that you have three holes because a lot of women don't realize this. Yeah. So you obviously have your urethral opening where your urine comes out of. You then have your vagina, which is, you know, connected to your uterus where you grow babies, give mm-hmm. birth out of there. And then you also have your anus, which obviously is where your poop comes out of. <laughs> <laughs> and you've forgotten the really important muscle that joins the vagina and the anus, which we've talked about a lot before, and that is your perineum. Because we are big on protecting the perineum. <laughs> <laughs> it, I've also kind of learnt as a midwife that it can depend on the size of your perineum to how well it's going to stretch. And Mm. I was told, oh, this was like years ago. I was on a night shift and one of the doctors mentioned that your perineum should be around about three centimeters. (gasps) So then we all went into the bathrooms (laughs) (laughs) on night shift and we're all measuring our perineums (laughs) (laughs) with just finger length. So we all did it ourselves, but we were all coming out of the bathrooms being like, oh my God, mine's like (laughs) two centimeters. And she's like, oh no, like when you're pregnant, it should be about three centimeters. (laughs) (laughs) internal ultrasounds (laughs) measuring perineums welcome to the life of a midwife (laughs) we're all about that i think it's important as midwives to educate women on not only what the vagina looks like but how it actually works as we know hormones play a huge role within the female body and in particular play a huge role in the health of our vaginas Female sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and even testosterone play a key role ranging from pregnancy to sexual arousal to the timing of your periods. Hormones also affect your vaginal health, especially during perimenopause and menopause. So when you're younger, relatively stable hormone levels help keep your vagina moist and pliable. (laughs) I like that. Stretchy. (laughs) (laughs) But as you actually go through perimenopause and menopause, a reduction in hormones may cause a condition known as vaginal atrophy. So vaginal atrophy occurs when the tissue in your vagina becomes really dry and thin and the tissue produces less collagen, which, you know, we all want more collagen in our lives. (laughs) We're all supplementing the collagen. We're all about the collagen. (laughs) A protein that provides elasticity and flexibility. So symptoms of vaginal atrophy may include decreased vaginal lubrication, which, you know, is important. Very important. Uh, frequent urinary tract infections, pain or discomfort during intercourse, or even vaginal dryness, itching, burning, inflammation, irritation, all those things. So how do we actually manage vaginal atrophy as we age? 
We can use vitamin E creams, vaginal probiotics. Even estrogen creams. Mm. So basically some form of hormone replacement therapy. And again, this is usually once we're well into our 40s, early 50s, and our bodies are cycling into menopause. Obviously, women can go into menopause much earlier than that, but um, typically that's the age at which our hormone levels start changing. So in order to maintain a healthy vagina, we need its pH to be balanced. So a normal pH of the vagina ranges from 3.8 to 4.5. This is actually quite acidic. However, it needs this for its microbiome to be healthy. pH levels change. For example, before your monthly bleed or also postmenopause, those acidity levels may be slightly higher. Blood has an average pH of about 7.4, so when you have your period, obviously your vaginal pH rises. So the vagina obviously has lots of harmless bacteria living inside it and around it, and discharge actually can help your vagina keep itself clean. It's a pretty delicate ecosystem, but sex and sex can change that as well. External factors like fragrance, wash products, or certain lubricants can also throw off the pH of your vagina and may cause some discomfort, infection, and inflammation. I think this is a really important point to make, um, particularly surrounding sexual health. It's really important that you kind of minimize the use of non-appropriate lubricant and condoms like the flavored ones that have like sugar on them so we're not saying don't use condoms no no (laughs) we're saying just use like appropriate condoms normal ones on that note semen has a ph of approximately 7.1 to 8 so when a woman has penetrative sex the vaginal ph level rises this creates a more kind of alkaline environment to protect the sperm and then encourage fertilization so this can also encourage the growth of certain bacteria as well so in order to try and maintain a healthy ph in your vagina a couple of key little pointers for you that ash and i've come up with (laughs) as usual first one is it's really important that you wear breathable fabric underwear like cotton underwear try and minimize wearing g-strings because that can they can actually attract uh, bacteria from your anus or your bowel into your vagina yeah. yeah and actually as well swimwear If you're wearing a lot of swimwear, they're not breathable. No. Going on from that, I got a nasty UTI. I've only had one UTI in my entire life, and it was from Coachella when (laughs) I was living in my swimmers. Why were you living in your swimmers? I don't know, because like... Were you camping? Oh, yeah, I was camping for Mm. the four days. And I think I was just... Because they went with my outfit some days, and it was really hot. (laughs) I I don't know why I was not wearing underwear. I was wearing swimmers. Okay. Same goes for actually anything tight. So um, your exercise pants, shorts. Yeah. So a lot of women probably would have got UTIs in yeah. here. <laughs> Should I we do a poll? Everyone has been to Coachella. <laughs> no, I'm talking about lockdown and oh. active wear life. <laughs> well, a lot of us were staying home, not going to the gym. Yeah, true. Um, so yeah, just make sure that that environment is, has a lot of fresh air. It's breathable. breathable. Your vagina can breathe. Also, using um, like vaginal products carefully. Yeah. So if you're using a menstrual cup when you have your period, make sure you're cleaning it properly. 
And changing your pads often if you're yeah. a pad wearer. Also, if you're a tampon wearer. Change, yeah, yeah, changing change that. <laughs> We're both just looking yeah. at each other like, yeah, yeah. you got to change that. And also try and opt for non-bleached tampons. Yes. So let's talk about discharge because it's an enigma for most women and not a lot of women want to talk about it. Who because... wants to talk about discharge? <laughs> but pretty much every woman has discharge. Yeah. Yep. And it is normal. So vaginal fluids change throughout the menstrual cycle. They change in color and they change in consistency. And discharge plays a huge role in conception. And as we mentioned earlier, it helps to helps the vagina to self-clean. Yeah. So what is a normal discharge? So pre-ovulation, your discharge should be clear or milky. And it should have a scent to it. A lot of people describe that scent as musky. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's scent is a little bit, a little different. bit different. Yeah. yeah. But if you notice your scent has completely changed, that's when you should be concerned. Absolutely. And what other consistencies can it be? So I guess ovulation discharge. So around the time of ovulation, your cervix and some glands up near your cervix releases a different type of mucus. And the role of this mucus is actually to help trap the sperm, (laughs) seriously, and feed it into the uterus, essentially. So it can be a little bit more clear and slippery, um, (laughs) egg white-ish. So it can like Egg white and milky are so similar. Yeah. But it, it does change. Like it's watery. Yeah. And I think if every woman listening to this actually took notice of their discharge throughout, say, like a six-month period, mm. you would actually notice it changing totally. throughout different weeks of your cycle. Totally. Yeah. So abnormal discharge looks yellow. Greenish. Definitely green. Like Has, if it looks like snot, that's... Oh, yeah. You've got a problem. Um, it can also, as we said, your change in odor. Yeah. Anything that's really like a change in consistency for you yeah. as well. Or amount, if you notice that it's increased. Yeah, it's increasing a lot. Gray, actually. You can have um, some infections cause a gray discharge as well. So those colors get checked out. Absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> let's jump straight in with Dr. Dan. So hi, Dan. Thanks for coming on the podcast with Woman with us. We're very excited. Thank you. I'm excited too. <laughs> He's got a glass of red and for once Sophie and I aren't drinking. Yeah. <laughs> he got the like he got the with woman memo, but we don't have it. <laughs> Which I love I love because it's three o'clock on a Thursday. Yeah, absolutely. This is a life of a shift worker. So we're gonna jump right in and get Dan to introduce himself. Dan, who are you? My name is Dan Krishnan. I'm one of the uh, obstetrician gynecologists and laparoscopic surgeons at Sutherland Hospital and Liverpool Hospital. But I know you guys from my fellowship year at Sutherland. Isn't that right? Yeah, actually, we so should two say years. that before... Well, I've known you a lot longer, Dan. Yeah, before Ash and I right. actually started working together, we both individually knew Dan from our previous hospitals. Yeah. So you get around, don't you, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to. <laughs> I think a lot of obstetricians, like when they're training and everything, they move hospitals a lot, don't you? That's right. That's right. It's all part of the training program, rotating to different hospitals and experiencing different demographics in our training. More exposure. Yeah. 
So why did you want to become an OBGYN? Medicine was always sort of a plan. I, I come from actually a non-medical family. My great-grandmothers were midwives. So oh, and, um, that. there was always talk around birth growing up amongst the women in the family. And of course, growing up, you know, uh, my grandmother would say that, oh, you know, my mother used to be a midwife and I really didn't like it. And um, it, was, it wasn't for me. And, you know, back then women would give birth in their homes or the midwives would go mm-hmm. to their homes. It was all home birth in the, mm-hmm. the 40s and, and 50s. So my grandmother grew up around this and I'm the closest person to my grandmother as the eldest grandchild. So there were lots of stories around birth growing up. So my grandmother didn't do anything to do with it. Like she didn't want anything to do with uh, birth <laughs> and deliveries and midwifery. She was too traumatized with the women coming to their house screaming and or in the middle of the night calls um, to her mother. And um, so did my mom. My mom did not do anything. She didn't want any, anything to do with birth and had a very difficult delivery with me. Um, so that's a bit of a personal touch. So yeah. the, my birth story is always a, a really interesting story. And in fact, we still talk about it. My mom told me how difficult it was. And I've met the, uh, I've met the obstetrician who delivered me. And so it was a very interesting story. So I grew up listening stories around birth. And I was like, okay, I think I, I'll become an obstetrician gynecologist. I didn't know what it was called when my sister was born. I was about four and a half. And of course, going to the obstetrician's appointment was such a delight because you're like, oh my God, there's something inside. You know, you scan the baby. and like. <laughs> so when my mom had my sister, she was on the this ward called maternity ward so I decided at the age of five I'll be a maternity that's, a, <laughs> that's the name of the job <laughs> so for the longest time I didn't know what I was called I would tell people I wanted to be a maternity and, um, like, okay. and along the way you know everyone's like oh and can you imagine growing up with this you know saying that you wanted to deliver babies or do surgery and stuff not many people pick OBGYN um, mm. certainly not many males pick OBGYN or male doctors but I figured there's only one good reason to go to the hospital, one happy reason, which yeah. is to have a baby. So that was That's the push into obs and gyne. So it was a very, you know, you don't want to go, everyone else is miserable going to the hospital, but there's only one group of people who are quite excited about going to the hospital. It's a group of women who are coming in to have a baby. So they actually want to see you as a doctor. They want to see you. They're really, yeah. you know, they, they want, and they tell you everything. That's the other thing a lot of people don't know about uh, yeah. our group of patients is that it's very easy to get a history out of them because yeah. they'll tell you everything from A to Z and there's, mm. there's nothing they'll hide. And it makes a, our job as healthcare practitioners in midwifery and in, in, in obstetrics much, much easier. So you always wanted to be an obstetrician then pretty much. Yes, yes. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah. How amazing is that? And rare, yeah. I think, for yeah. a young child to still have that same like passion you ask kids what they want to be when they're yeah, all they're always like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to be a maternity so, yeah. <laughs> i know i wanted to be a maternity that's it's a, it's a really funny story actually. but anyway oh, so here i am and along the way got you know lots of inspiration to do different things in the specialty so i did a advanced laparoscopic fellowship um and learned so much about gynecology this year, I've been doing some work with the cancer surgeon, so with gynae cancer. So that's another eye-opening, um, mm. great specialty, all related to the one specialty that brought me here, women's health. Where does your passion lie in OBGYN? My passion would be just caring for women who are underprivileged. Mm. I think, generally speaking, you know, we need to improve the system a lot more. Uh, we need a lot more women's uh, women's health advocates. And so that's where my passion is. So 
the vulnerable, um, the underprivileged, which is why I like endometriosis patients, for instance, cancer patients, for instance, obstetric patients, for instance. So there's a lot of work to be done. And that's where my passion lies, I think. A good question. How many babies do you think you've delivered? Probably 2,000. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit. Yeah. So the other interesting thing was that when I, when I was an intern, I, I got a chance to do obstetrics and gynecology. And so my wife and I, Komal and I moved around the country for my career at that stage. And I got into Obzangani very early in my career. So I finished my internship and the following year went to Western Australia for an unaccredited registrar position at King Edward Memorial Hospital for Women. So I started delivering babies very early as opposed to doing an intern year, a resident year, then an SRMO, then an unaccredited Mm. registrar. So I'm very, very tunnel visioned into obstetrics and gynecology. So my my general knowledge in medicine is not excellent because I think Mm. I went well, into when you know, quickly. you know. Yeah, when you know, you know. So true. <laughs> and I, I didn't think it was going to be a hard job, but man, this is a tough, tough oh job. Oh my God, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> On that note, is there any instances where the stress is so overwhelming that you just wish you could just tag team with someone else? Because there are often times in your career where you're the only you're person the, like, there. You're, you're the our go-to. Yeah, yeah. So when we don't know what we're doing or when there's an emergency situation, we rely on you. So are there ever any yeah, instances where it's just... But, you know, to be honest, both of you have worked with me in clinical settings at very various stages in my career. So Soph worked with me in 2015. I was a first year fresh trainee, <laughs> if you remember. And Ash, in 2016, I was a second year trainee. Yeah. So very early in my career. And I think I don't feel alone in the job. I never feel alone because I feel like we are all part of a team. Mm. I've never been the I'm alone. I'm the only doctor around in the middle of the night, which is often you are the only doctor in the yeah. middle of the night. You know, you'll always find me asking your opinion. Like, what do you think? Oh, what That's do you think? What do you think? I do because I think it's important to think from different perspectives yeah, um, as healthcare pro- professionals and never feel that you have to make the decision alone because, you know, sometimes a different opinion matters and can mm. change a lot of things clinically. So I've never actually felt alone. And of course, you have a, a specialist on the phone um, okay. always available and now I get to be that specialist so it's, it's quite daunting I'm like yeah mm, I'm not actually <laughs> I'm not qualified yeah. enough for this. <laughs> oh wait I am <laughs> wait let me just call my boss <laughs> I am the boss <laughs> I'm like I am the boss yeah do you ever get stressed out by the pressure of that you know I must say I thought I would be I thought mm. it was going to be harder I was very stressed about becoming a specialist mm. um we underestimate the quality of training in Australia to a certain point. You come out as a specialist and you, you're on the job and you realize, wow, I can deal with a lot of things because I've been trained to deal with a lot of things. Mm. And it's a six long year training program. So it's a lot of work that goes into becoming a specialist exams, you know, both oral and, and written. And then the clinical years, um, junior years and senior years and fellowships they actually really equip you to become a, a good specialist. So, um, And we've it's worked been... some crazy shifts with you. <laughs> we have. You handle yourself we have, well. Oh God, yes. <laughs> we yes. won't name what happened. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been a few moments for sure. <laughs> sure. Another one for you. What motivates you outside of work? My family is my biggest motivation. So my son, mm. my wife, you know, after having um, a child 
ourselves we, it just it just opens your eyes to a lot of things that parents go through young parents such as myself and my wife and there was so much unknown in parenting mm. there's so much idealism in having a child my my biggest motivation outside of work um is to one keep fit um i'm that's always a battle i'm trying <laughs> i love my food so <laughs> um if i hit the gym 3 times a week i feel like i'm a winner so that's one two You're like ash yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah yeah forget to spend a day a week with my son i think that's another big win as well yeah. and an evening a week with my wife is another big plus so these three things on a weekly basis make me happy so that's it it's very i'm a very simple guy <laughs> which leads on to our very next question which is yeah. describe your philosophy on what it means to be a father which we ask everyone that comes on the podcast mm. what their philosophy is on motherhood or fatherhood our idea of parenting and my idea of fatherhood is just to wing it just to go on with the flow mm. yeah actually because how much can you plan yeah you can't plan anything and you just have to go with the flow and every child is different and that's the, yeah. the other thing that we you can't go based on what someone else is doing another another dad is doing you just have to go with the flow and see where your kids at it's been good and every day is so different too oh yes oh my god yes every day every oh. year every phase <laughs> um, I had to take my son for his uniform shopping this morning. Now we don't say with we don't say the school word at home because it causes a big meltdown at home. Oh. I'm not going to school. Milan's his name, so we spell the word like we gotta get S C H O O L uniform this morning. <laughs> my wife and I talk to each other. So, anyways, I had to absolutely lie to him and said that oh, we're gonna play cricket. So oh. We went like cricket bat and cricket ball. Oh, so not even like we're going to go shopping to get something else. Yeah, it's Christmas. We're going to go cricket. So he was like, oh, yeah, I'll come cricket. Yeah, I'll come for cricket play, you know, a session of cricket. So he was like, oh, yeah, off we go. And he was carrying his bat. And I was like, oh, slight detour. And how'd you go? Was it a success or? Oh, it was sort of a success because um, the uniform store uh, lady was like, oh, try this and try this. Now a five-year-old boy trying five different sizes is not a good idea. No. <laughs> he was like, what <laughs> am I doing Are we here? going to cricket after? Or? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they all look the same, but he doesn't understand they're different sizes and like, it's all the same. Why am I trying different clothes? Um, anyways. <laughs> So we managed, I, I'm, this was one of those days where I didn't have um, Como with me, which I find very challenging. I must say dads out there, I think um, we don't realize how much it's really difficult, you know, to be, to be an only parent with a kid. And I, we always leave the kids with the mums and, and it's hard, it's hard mm. work. And I, I, every time I'm alone with Milan with that task, like going out to the park is easy and stuff. But with a task, doing a task with a child without your partner helping you can be very difficult. <laughs> so yes, we lost. I'm learning all this slowly. I know we got the uniforms, and so mom's going to come home tonight. And if it's the wrong size, we are both going to hear about it. <laughs> Just say he wouldn't try on the fifth size. He'll refer to it as his cricket uniform now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to lead on to a couple of questions about the vagina. Sure. Um, <laughs> is there any way to tell the pH of the vagina, like without testing it? Changes in the vaginal pH can, can often call, mean problems. And you will often have, you know, sometimes in thrush or infections, the pH can change. 
is there a test for it? I suppose there is. Would you routinely do it? I think the answer is no. And if there's changes, it often means that there'll be an abnormal discharge and certainly will need an investigation by a GP or a gynecologist to make sure there's no infection. Because I think any change in the vagina can cause change in the, the consistency of discharge and fluidity of the discharge or smell, color. So any, any pH change will be a pathology. And most often... Uh, patients would know it straight away. So routinely, you wouldn't test. If there's any change in the pH, it usually indicates it could be a change in the physiology, which is often caused by an infection. What do you think about the um, like pH-changing feminine products, like the wash products? It was yeah. never recommended. Yeah. So wash I feel products, like it's just like a ploy sometimes to just... It's another thing it, that's it like is. a marketing yeah, that yes. people can buy. There's so much marketing out there. It was ne- a gynecologist would never recommend products like that because mm. you're going to alter a lot of things and bodily functions and physiology, which you don't need to. And, and the vagina cleans that, itself, it doesn't it? Correct. It does. It does. Can you tell us what bacterial vaginosis is and how it differs from thrush? So thrush is usually caused by candidiasis. It's a, it's a fungal infection. It's much more common than we think. Some women are not symptomatic at all with thrush. Some women have a lot of symptoms such as itch, dryness, pain on intercourse, abnormal discharge. It's usually very, for the most of the time, very easy to treat. Occasionally it can be very difficult to treat. So recurrent thrush is a problem. Mm. We often find there's a problem in, in women who are either immunocompromised, who've gone through certain form of treatments like if they are going through chemotherapy and you know something that's going to or immune modulators so it causes them to be immunocompromised which means the body's not going to fight the thrush as well it's very extremely common in pregnancy most of the time it's very easy to treat thrush and recurrent is when you have to see gynecologist and that's oh, with, start over, with the GP over the counter and then, yes over the counter canister treats thrush i usually recommend getting someone to to test first like a swab a high vaginal mm-hmm. swab to make sure to confirm that that's what we are treating simple things like certain antibiotics can even cause thrush. Pregnancy can cause thrush. So simple changes of the body sometimes can do that, but it's not difficult to treat for the most part. Bacterial vaginosis, it's often inflammation of the vagina. So you need to have a severe infection of the vagina. Usually swelling or the change in the natural balance of the vagina is caused by an infection. It's most often by Gardnerella vaginalis, which is a species of the bacteria that can infect the vaginal epithelium cause inflammation as a result of the infection called abnormal discharge and foul smelling discharge. Mm-hmm. So any foul smelling discharge or abnormal discharge, I think, and, and as I said, we are, we are in a specialty where our patients are very um, in tuned with their mind and body and they can very easily come and tell the practitioner something is not right. Uh, most often patients will see their GP And at that stage, a swab is done to confirm what infection it is, and it's easy to treat. And in bacterial vaginosis shouldn't cause any harm if treated. Okay, so we're going to jump into talking about vaginas and sexual intercourse. We know that vaginas can stretch during intercourse or childbirth as well. But why could some women experience more pain than others, particularly with intercourse? So the term for painful sexual intercourse is called dyspareunia. It's really important to talk about painful intercourse and dyspareunia because it is 
the sign of endometriosis. So painful uh-huh. intercourse is never meant to be normal. Any pain during intercourse should be taken seriously. In recent years, we have realize how common endometriosis is in the general population yeah. it's also to a taboo to talk about discomfort during intercourse pain during intercourse so a lot of times endometriosis gets diagnosed a lot later and by the time patients come to see us they've struggled with this for a very long time a lot of women do think that painful intercourse is usually due to either position or lubrication it's a or a medical condition that we shouldn't take lightly because prolonged endometriosis has poor impact on a woman's health mm-hmm. and fertility so painful intercourse is something we should always take seriously painful periods we should also always take seriously and definitely seek a gynecologist's opinion regarding that a lot of women don't want to really even talk about sex let alone Mm. details about their like sex life and that it is painful Correct. yeah can you explain to us what vaginismus is uh, on the note of dysperiunia which i mentioned mm. endometriosis is often related to deep dysperiunia or painful intercourse during penetration and vaginismus is a condition that often presents at, at a superficial stage where okay. you have you know a painful intercourse before even there's deep penetration vaginismus is a huge taboo to be spoken about and we see this in women um they struggle with it it comes out during labor sometimes mm. it's extremely uncomfortable you have examinations or cervical screening tests or pap smears women with vaginismus go through a lot of struggles and there's a lot of therapists out there there's some gynecologists who specialize in treating vaginismus it's often in conjunction with a psychologist there's also lots of cognitive behavioral therapy that goes together with the treatment of, vag- of severe vaginismus uh, vaginismus often when the patients present with vaginismus is usually how they cannot tolerate an intercourse they cannot tolerate any form of penetration to the vagina and it can have huge a uh, psychological impact on a woman and huge impact on the relationship for both mm-hmm. partners there's a lot of treatment out there there's there's a it's a multidisciplinary approach both patient and partner can be counseled treated examined um, by a team of practitioners to help them and why do some women get recurrent utis more so than others so when you talk about utis in women there's often a Uh, and sometimes an anatomical problem as well so for example if they have a prolapse mm. if they have a um that is something patho- i didn't know yeah so you know particularly in older women you would find that when they're going you know they have a prolapse and there's a change in the anatomy you can have um, a lot of you know a, a string of utis that needs to be fixed anytime somebody has urinary retention can be uti having Uh, a new sexual partner a different se- a change in sexual practice can sometimes exacerbate a uti pregnancy is that just because of like time. the different bacteria that are entering the vagina it can be yeah it can be that it can be position um you know so sometimes it can also be pregnancy because pregnancy you don't feel a uti coming on um you don't the symptoms in, of uti in pregnancy is different so mm-hmm. what you may feel in a non pregnant state may be different to what you may feel in pregnancy or may not feel at all so there are many factors to recurrent utis and definitely some women are prone to them more than others and there's certainly a lot of uh, uh, methods and measures around prevention of this 
in some cases, particularly in a urogynecological setting of postmenopausal women, we would sometimes give prophylactic antibiotics for a long time. We also give them in pregnant women sometimes for a long time. It can be a challenge to treat. So why is thrush and UTIs often more common during pregnancy? So pregnancy itself, I think there's just so much change that it's often, number one, difficult to keep up with everything that's happening. Mm. First time mothers generally may feel that this is, you know, could be all part of pregnancy and may not realize it's a problem. Mm. Secondly, there's always a change in pregnancy as well, because remember, you, there's a lot of discharge that changes in pregnancy. You've got a different level of hormone, hormonal changes like progesterone, for example. There's a lot of changes that go through in the body that it's very easy to think that it's a normal part of a pregnancy change, but it can actually be a big problem. So I have an interesting question for you, Dan. Um, Sure. Can a woman become allergic to her partner's sperm? Well, it is a very interesting question, actually, I must say, Ash. (laughs) I'm asking for a friend and the friend is not me. It's a real friend. (laughs) It's not Um, one of Ash's weekend stories. No. (laughs) So I think um, seminal plasma allergy or a semen hypersensitivity it's, a, it's one of those very rare things that can happen in women, um, particularly when they first start having sexual intercourse with a new partner. And the reactions can be quite severe, um, such as you know, swelling, burning, uh, redness, discharge. It is extremely rare, but does happen. And it should be taken seriously if, it, if it's a continuous problem after a prolonged period of sexual intercourse between um, two people. And there's certainly, you know, dermatologists who deal with this, who can sometimes do some allergy testing and find out if it's truly a semen hypersensitivity that the the lady is going through um, and can be definitely very daunting and difficult to deal with. A few gynecologists who specialize in vulval dermatology um, who are experts in... um, Yes, yeah, there's there's (laughs) quite a few people who... Who, uh, who, and there's not many of them who specialize in it. And <laughs> so, vulval derm- yeah. so vulval dermatology is where, you know, if, if it's something that, you know, sometimes we general gynecologists or other subspecialists cannot deal with, we would refer to a vulval dermatology and oh. they tend to deal with the recurrent crushes and the, the difficult bacterial vaginosis and, mm-hmm. and, you know, semen hypersensitivity, abnormal discharges. Um, abnormal skin lesions. So they're definitely an expert in, in areas which is not very, very common. Or she could get a new partner. <laughs> I think this is a long-term <laughs> boyfriend, so I've got a problem. <laughs> so leading on to our last couple of questions really about sex, what STIs are the most common ones, really? The most common would be chlamydia and gonorrhea. We often test for this straight away. Any abnormal discharge with pelvic pain, um, we, we will do an endocervical swab, a high vaginal swab, sometimes a low vaginal swab. It has huge implications. Of course, spread is one. So contact tracing is important. And the implication, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the implication for the, the woman is long-term infertility. So we often want these diseases, these infections to be treated promptly because we don't want this to become, an, uh, number one, a tubo ovarian abscess, um, which is an abscess or a, you know, a collection in the pelvis, which is usually an exacerbation of an STI or a pelvic infection. 
we don't want her to we don't want the patient to have a lot of adhesions which can affect fertility in the future these adhesions can cause chronic pelvic pain and of course you know the most serious um, uncommon stis will include hiv hepatitis b hepatitis c when we suspect someone having one sti we tend to do a whole panel of serology and PCR testing, including cultures and sensitivity, to make sure we don't miss anything. You mentioned pelvic inflammatory disease. Does that often occur when women have not been aware that they have a sexually transmitted infection? It can. Mild cases, they may not be symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Um, But eventually, if it's not treated, it'll become moderate to severe, which will cause severe pelvic pain painful intercourse, which will often prompt a woman to see a general practitioner in the first instance. If an infection is there, it'll only get worse if it's not treated. Which would you say is the most common STIs that are treatable? So uh, chlamydia is the most common STI in Australia. It's uh, very easily treatable as long as we trace both partners and ensure adequate treatment of both partners. Because sometimes if you treat um, the woman and the, the male partner still has an ongoing infection and they still have, they continue to have intercourse. Uh, and then they just The infection keeps past, they give it back, uh. they can give it back to each other. There's a few other infections that, such as herpes, uh, such as syphilis that's common as well in Australia, genit- uh, gonorrhea, of course. HIV, hepatitis, but I think in Australia, the most common would be chlamydia. Which and I feel like growing I, up, like you hear about herpes the most, you don't really hear about chlamydia mm, and gonorrhea that yeah. much. <laughs> chlamydia is actually um, extremely dangerous for fertility, in the, you know, if it's, if, if it's left untreated. And a lot of women don't often have symptoms if they have chlamydia either, do they? Not necessarily. Yeah. A lot of men don't have symptoms, which is the other problem. Or they might, you know, not be as symptomatic as women. So we have a couple of questions moving on to cervical screening, which I think this one's a really important one for a lot of women to know about. How frequently should we be tested and when should we start getting tested? So um, I'm very passionate about cervical screening tests. (laughs) Um, I think as as, uh, it's one of the most, cervical cancer is one of the most preventable cancers in the world. The other thing about cervical cancer is that it is, a cancer that affects all ages and even young women. There's one thing I tell everyone is to keep up to date with their cervical screening test. The Australian recommendation is to start at the age of 25. It used to be different. It's changed now. The starting age is 25. You test every five years. Yeah, it used to be every three, it, didn't it? Yeah. It used to be, it used to be every two years. Um, and now that the testing has changed, I think we start at the age of 25 and we finish at 74. Oh, 74. 74. That's such like a distinct mm. number. 74. Why not just go 74? <laughs> yeah. 75. What happens over 75? It doesn't matter. <laughs> over the hill. So it used to be called a pap smear, mm-hmm. where it used to be that we put a smear on a, on a glass slide but now it's all HPV-based and it's liquid-based cytology. It's called a cervical screening test, as simple as that CST, we call it, recommended every five years. So you just mentioned HPV. What is it and why are some strains harmful and others aren't? So I think the HPV test, one, I just have to mention, it's extremely common in anyone sexually active. Most of the time, HPV is an infection that the body will fight. It doesn't cause any harm. Sometimes it can become cancer. 
which is why certain HPV strains, when found in a cervical screening test, there'll be a referral to a gynecologist for colposcopic assessment. And what does HPV actually stand for? It stands for human papillomavirus. Can we get rid of it? Eventually, you do. Mm-hmm. So and your body, your body just fights so it itself. The, your body just fights it. So, so this is what happens. A 25-year-old has a pap smear. If it's normal, she's recommended to have one in five years. And un- unless she has symptoms of cervical cancer. When there is presence of HPV, the cervical screening test will we complete it with a liquid-based cytology to make sure that there's no malignant cells or pre-malignant cells. In simple terms, I would say pre-cancerous cells that could be present in the cervix. And if it comes back as a high-risk HPV with pre-cancerous cells, that's when a woman will be referred for a gynecological assessment. So if the HPV is causing trouble, eventually you know, the patient will have a LETS procedure and surveillance after that. In the meantime, the body helps fight it. And she, once she has surveillance, if it's negative, then she goes back to the routine screening because mm-hmm. we've gotten rid of the infection. So I, I always tell my patients that HPV goes both ways, either gets better or gets worse. We just have to monitor closely. If we need to do a colposcopy, we should do a colposcopy. If we need to do a LETS, we need to do a LETS. So do you think the Gardasil vaccination plays a large role in the low percentage of cervical cancer in women in Australia? For sure. There's not many cervical cancers in Australia, but it does affect younger patients. When we look at the numbers of uh, new cases of cervical cancer being diagnosed in 2021, about 913 women this year have been diagnosed with cervical cancer. And it's about 1.3% of all new female cancers diagnosed this year, which may not seem like a big number, but the impact of cervical cancer is huge. And mm. certainly um, in my experience, it often affects younger women. And they're usually women who have, you know, young children, they're in their late 30s, and it can be a very difficult disease to treat sometimes. And if it grows above, if the cancer becomes too big, it becomes unresectable, which means the primary treatment for cervical cancer will then have to be radiation. So the impact on a, on a young mother of two children can be huge. I think um, we have to admit that Australia is doing very well with the Gardasil vaccination and you know, um, our pre- prevention of high-risk HPV strains has been excellent and we are only going to get better with the vaccination of, of students and children in school. But we still need to be mindful of getting the cervical screening tests on time and making sure you follow up when needed, because it is one the one thing that we can do um, as healthcare workers, as patients, to prevent the burden of cervical cancer. And you're right. So it yes, is the a very easily preventable cancer. It's a very it easily yeah. preventable cancer. We just have a couple of questions, like pregnant, actually post-pregnancy questions about women at their six-week postnatal check, because the six-week postnatal check is kind of your next checkup after having a baby. What usually happens at a six-week checkup? There's two components to the six-week postpartum check. There's a mother component and the baby component. From a maternal perspective or from a mother's perspective, um, you want to make sure breastfeeding is going okay. Uh, There's no signs and symptoms of mastitis. There's no excessive vaginal bleeding. There's a discussion regarding uh, the birth process. If there's any problems or like a debrief. 
like a debrief. So a lot of times GPs would say, how, how did it all go? Because they've known a GP for a while, the GP has diagnosed the pregnancy, done the startup of the pregnancy workup, and then they're coming back to see the GP with a newborn in their arms. So it's a, it's a good opportunity for most GPs to check up on their patients, and they do. They'll talk about the birth, they'll talk about the experience, they'll make sure that, you know, if there's been a difficult delivery or a PPH during the delivery, the GP would often check the iron levels, the full blood count, or simple things like vaccinations as well. Like if a woman needs a MMR, if she didn't have it in the hospital, usually we give them postpartum on the ward. You know, the GP would check all of that. Um, if the woman didn't have a boostix vaccination, it's a good opportunity at, at the postpartum period as well. So I think it's always a good snapshot. And we always talk about pap smears and, and cervical screening tests at the postpartum check. However, in recent years, I've become a little bit more passionate about cervical screening tests, um, <laughs> even in pregnant women, because mm. I find that, you know, when you're pregnant, you at least you don't have to worry about a child. And going to see the GP with a six-week call who's screaming the place down can be very difficult on its own. <laughs> yeah. And then asking them, the new mother to you know, to have a pap smear, a lot of them will not be comfortable or it may be just too difficult in the current climate. They're going to take a baby alone without a partner. It can be very difficult to get a pap smear on top of everything else that's happening. So um, if a woman's due for a pap smear while she's pregnant, she can still have it? 100%. Okay, yeah. A pap smear is a very safe, very, very safe investigation. So as a basic a pap smear, if, if she's due for a pap smear, I often recommend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and most GPs do it at booking these days. And so women should definitely start thinking about contraception by the six weeks. That or should a, they already uh, yeah. be starting on it before six-week checkup? Usually a, an extensive conversation at the six-week mark. It can go through all the different options at that stage. It's also dependent on if the woman is breastfeeding or not. Which is breastfeeding, we would pres- the safest pill to take is the progesterone-only pill, the mini pill. In other words, if they've decided not to breastfeed, you know, they've healed well from the delivery itself, then if there's no risk factors, they can have the combined oral contraceptive pill. There's other options to consider, such as the Implanon, the Marina. Again, both of them can be inserted during their stay in the hospital. But most women would think, you know, let, let's, let me go home, think about this, have a discussion with my partner. Let me heal. Um, let me put a Marina in. Let me heal before <laughs> thinking about the second child. It's the most common response, like, oh, my God, I can't even imagine. I can't it. even think about, yeah. Um, can't even think about, you know, contraception yeah. at this stage. It is um, awkward having those contraception yeah. chats, isn't it? And it's like, are you joking? Mm. <laughs> I'm literally like, like, no, seriously. Like, it is awkward. Yeah. But it has to be raised because yeah. I think we don't know these things and we can't ever, I mean, I being a patient myself sometimes, navigating the medical system can be very challenging. And, yes. you know, we, we should never assume that patients know we should always offer to help in any way possible, even things like contraception, although they're not thinking about it. You can always say, look, these are your options. Um, if you want something now, I can give you. But if not, you can always speak to your GP at your six-week mark. I was just about to say that it's like an awkward conversation to talk about contraception sometimes. They can easily fall pregnant around six weeks. They can. And that's uh, the biggest misconception is that breastfeeding is contraception. And we, we all know breastfeeding is not, not adequate contraception. And getting pregnant too early has its own negative implications for the subsequent pregnancy. If the interpregnancy interval is less than 12 months between delivery date, you run the risk of having anemia in pregnancy, having um, a smaller baby, the second pregnancy. So it can have huge impacts on the subsequent pregnancy. The timing the babies are important. 
Yeah. And which is why we talk about contraception. And also just give your body a bit of a break, like a bit of a rest. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so final note, I guess, to wrap things up. A takeaway for the people listening to this podcast, what's the number one thing you would like all women to know? Anything that you wish women knew about their, their bodies, bodies that you see a lot that we don't? So the first thing I'd like to say is that seek help early. I think we are very available. I think that whole old school generation of um, uh, doctors are not very common anymore. We are very hipster, approachable, friendly, (laughs) willing to help. (laughs) Have to put it out there. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's a different generation of doctors. There's no barrier between healthcare professionals and patients anymore. I think the, the one take-home message is that opening up to your healthcare professional, maybe a, a GP or your gynecologist, is the first step about anything. Because not to be embarrassed. I think about we'll it. all be mm. not to be embarrassed about it. Like we'll all be very surprised about uh, what we learn about ourselves and what what services are available and how we can you know how we can help ourselves um, get better. So we should never assume it is one problem. We should always seek help. Asking for help is the one thing I would always recommend. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for jumping on. We really appreciate it. Sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah, lots of wisdom. We will definitely have to get you back. Happy to be back. (laughs) Hopefully next time we can all have wine together. Yeah, that would be lovely. We'll get our brewskis. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of With Woman, where we chat about everything to do with your lady garden. <laughs> I think Dr. Dan will love, love that lady. term and that <laughs> reference. And ladies, I think it's time to grab a mirror, to start checking your underwear a little bit more and notice any changes in smell, color, volume of your discharge and just get to know your body. That's the most important thing. Just get to know your body. And your vulva. And your vulva. <laughs> so at least you'll know what your normal is. Yeah. Ash and I will be back next year. See you then. Bye. Bye. So thank you for listening to this episode of With Woman. We hope you found this useful for your journey and you can find us on Instagram at withwoman.thepodcast. So flick us a follow and get amongst it. You'll find our latest episode updates there. And also please feel free to slide on into our DMs if there are any topics you'd like us to discuss in the future. That's it for us. Bye. Bye.